Hi everyone, today I had the pleasure of speaking with Professor Eric Millstone out of the University of Sussex. He's retired now, but is an emeritus professor of science policy in the Science Policy Research Unit at the University of Sussex. His first uh, degree was in physics, but then he obtained three postgraduate degrees in philosophy. He then shifted his focus on analyzing and understanding expertise and evidence in the management of the food chain, regulation, food safety, setting up government policies in regards to just improving food safety in the UK and Europe and understanding the differences between the US and other markets. I'm really grateful for his time, and I think you'll find it interesting. I left some of the banter that usually accompanies an interview, and I left it in this conversation because I think it gives you some of the personality of the professor, and he's quite friendly and calm and inquisitive and open-minded, and he ends with a very important lessening of questioning authority and questioning each other. And when we start the conversation, he also questions me. And I thought that was useful in framing the conversation and understanding why I was interested in him and exploring that. So I hope you find this conversation interesting, and thanks for listening. Hi, good evening. Professor Millstone, can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Fantastic. Um, Professor, we don't need the video if you don't. You can leave it on or if, I usually Thank just you. do audio. Great. Thank you. Uh, thanks for being so punctual, actually. Uh, you were actually five minutes <laughs> early and I got an alert on my phone. Uh, Professor Millstone, thanks so much for meeting me. Sorry, you can call me Eric. Eric? Perfect. Um, well, why don't we just dive in? I was reading a lot well, of Well, no, b- before we do... Sure. A couple of questions from my part. What are you trying to achieve on this occasion? I have no agenda. Just was interested in some of your work. And I like interviewing toxicologists and environmental scientists and people in the food industry. I have a background in chemical science. And I used to run a company that made surfactants. Uh, I then owned a brewery and a food industry, industrial products. I'm just interested in the sector of food, regulatory science and just the intersection between science and regulation, food safety. I live in Hawaii. Uh, food independence is a huge issue for us. You know, we try to generate as much food as possible. Um, I have a lot of friends who are in regenerative farming and kind of natural non-GMO movements. Hawaii passed a lot of regulations against uh, GMO seeds and things. Um, Hawaii obviously has a history of... Um, toxic farming and um, oh i didn't know that yeah especially with the um you know if there's an island lanai which is owned actually by the billionaire um larry ellison and that was destroyed basically by the dole plantation pineapple is wonderful Uh it is you know they they use plastic coverings and they didn't care about the the waste of the plastic (laughs) so just a no agenda just interested in yeah yeah i'm sorry forgive me well but i I, I, I'm skeptical about the claim that anybody has no agenda. I mean, you've you you've indicated some of your interests, and you've indicated some of your perspectives on that on on those interests. So, 
um, you may well be interested to hear what I've got to say, but um, there's, presumably there's, you've got some idea of the topics you want to cover and those that you don't. No, I'm actually very interested in here. You know, we can free flow. You can talk about anything you want. I was reading some of your papers. One of the ones that was most interesting and I never thought about was Iran. You wrote this. Um, oh. Yeah, and I, I don't know anything about Iran. Uh, we could talk about that. I'm curious about mad cow disease. My uh, father is uh, Bermudian, so mm-hmm. Brexit has had some effect on uh, yeah. my family. I'm curious about yeah. the regulations there. Um, mm. Yeah, r- really. I'm also okay. Uh, well, the, so you are giving me an indication of the the issues you're you're particularly keen to discuss, so that that's helpful. So I'm not entirely in the dark as to where we're going. Yeah. Did you have any other questions, uh, Eric? Um, yes, I guess I do. So what are you planning to do with this recording? Uh, once I record it, I would edit out any sections. I would send you a draft, transcribe it, and then send you a draft for review. And if there's anything you don't like or want to add, we can always add that. And, you know, I maybe a thousand people listen to this if we're lucky and maybe generate some questions. I try to be as open-minded as possible. Um, yeah, I don't... Okay, well, I find um, that reassuring that you are going to provide me with a, a transcript and an opportunity to have a say on which passages get used and which don't. I mean, th- this has an impact on how I frame my comments. So it would also, I guess it would also help me to give me some idea of the, of the audience to whom, I mean, who might see this, take a look at it. Um, I've been interviewing a lot of people in the farming community, and that might be interesting for them to hear someone at kind of a policy level. Right. I have other friends who work in Hawaii at the policy level in agriculture, and there's definitely an interaction between um, corporate interests and non-corporate interests. So that's always interesting. Yep. Um, I'm very particularly interested at a personal level, and I think other people are living in the U.S. There's just a different level of food quality than maybe in Europe. Um and it's just fascinating because I, I go to Europe sometimes once a year and I'll eat all the bread I can and nothing happens mm-hmm. and I lose weight. And here in the U.S., I have to just basically stay away from gluten and uh, just flour. And I don't know if it's glyphosate or other, you know, toxins yeah. and who knows what it is, right? So I'm interested in yeah. talking to an expert. Um, I read some quotes from you that seemed interesting. Um, yeah, I just... You know, people who are, I, I would say my audience is non-specifically specialists. I'm sure your people who read your right. papers are toxicologists and environmental scientists and maybe mm-hmm. people in policy. So I think yeah. it's interesting to have a, you know, just, I'm interested. Yeah, so, in, but we're, 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 can, we're trying to communicate with a non-specialist audience. Correct. But sometimes having a level of, you know, specificity is actually quite yeah. important encouraging for people to further yeah but we we shouldn't be using um vocabulary that lead them mystified no and if there's any words that i'm not familiar with i'll just ask you for explanation Okay. okay and what sort of duration do you want this to run um as much time as you have i'm very generous uh grateful for your time usually they last about an hour and the people get tired and 
uh, we, you know, either do another one or just, you know what I mean? Well, I'm chronically tired. I'm chronically tired. I mean, I'm hopeless. I'm in my late 70s and I haven't stopped working yet. And I mean, I'm retired in the sense that I'm not getting paid for what I do, but I keep doing it. Um, no. Well, that's good. I mean, my grandparents lived, uh, he was my grandfather who was in the food industry as well um, and produced industrial yeasts for cheese making, uh, was mm. active until 95. So I think mm-hmm. work is good and healthy and I hope to keep working as yes. long as I can. So again, very grateful for your time. Uh, but you may be familiar with the, oh, what's his name? Jackson Brown has a song, Running on Empty. You may, you may be, you know, you may not be familiar with it. Well, I hope we can encourage you with um, the fact that people are reading your work, and maybe that gives you, <laughs> you know, um, energy to keep going and keep okay. producing content. Well, that's kind of you to say, sir. But my, I, I don't have the stamina I used to have, so I'll see how I'm getting on. Great. Well, if you get tired, we can just end it and just, you know, okay. so. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions, Professor? Um, not that I can think of. Though, I, yeah, I guess another observation. No, if I if I use a word that sounds unfamiliar to Americans and sort of archaic English, just point that out, and I'll try and rephrase it. Great. No, I think people are elusive and can understand, uh, you know, the Queen's English. So, <laughs> no need to translate. Hopefully, um, but. Maybe we can start, uh, okay. Professor Millstone. Thank you again for meeting with me. But what first drew you to food science and science policy and agriculture and regulation? I think you had a degree in philosophy, or three of them, I understand, in physics. So maybe you can just walk us all the way back to what drew you to this topic of interest. It was it was entirely accidental, uh, as you indicated. I did a first degree in physics, but while doing physics. Accidentally, I succumbed to a very severe attack of philosophy. And um, I I did indeed do three postgraduate degrees in philosophy. And then in 1973, I was appointed to a post at, at the University of Sussex in England to teach the history and philosophy of science. But while I was a graduate student in philosophy, I'd been introduced by an American friend of mine, who he was a, also a philosophy graduate student at the University in London. Um, he was from uh, Southern California, but he, he was an avid reader of and introduced me to the New York Review of Books, and I found it a very interesting publication. So I, had a, I used to buy it every issue as it came out, and then in March '74. There was an. I read an article that changed my life. The article was called "Death for Dinner," and it was written by an American journalist. Review of several books published in the U.S. The gist of which was that the American food industry was effectively ripping off and poisoning its consumers. I mean, it's ripping them off in the sense of taking cheap and plentiful ingredients and processing them into relatively scarce and expensive products, 
but also in introducing into those products loads of chemical food additives that either hadn't been properly tested or in some cases had been tested, evidence had emerged indicating that they might be harmful, yet nonetheless they, they remained in the food supply. And at the time, actually, the article said, and I checked this, I think it was correct at the time, that life expectancy in the U.S. was then falling. Um, adult life expectancy in the U.S. was then falling. Um, and that, that, that really shocked me. And um, I don't know what came over me, but I did something I'd never done before. I took a copy of the article, and I dug around to find out which office in which department of which ministry of the British government dealt with the food safety issues. And I found it was in the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food. And I sent them a copy of the article and asked them if I could have a conversation with them about it. Essentially, I was interested to ask, you know, is, is the same true in Britain? And I was eventually offered an appointment. But when I showed up in good time for the appointment, I was kept waiting in an ante room for an hour and a half or two hours. And I was expecting to meet one or two people, and they would say, oh, don't worry, that's only in the US. Everything's fine here. Instead, I was summoned into a room, and I think there were, I can't remember precisely, whether it was seven or nine people lined up behind a, a long table with a seat in front for the delinquent schoolboy, as it were, that I was supposed to sit on. And only the person in the middle spoke. And I, I paraphrase, but essentially he said, go away, little man, get your nose out of your, get a nose out of our business. And I mean, I assumed if it, if it was a reassuring narrative to tell, he'd have told it. And I sort of stumbled out into the street outside and sat down in a coffee shop and got myself a drink. And I thought, if those people had a decent story to tell, they'd have told it. They've got something to hide. I'm going to dig into this. <laughs> and I started digging. And for the first five or so years, all the information I could find then was from the USA. Nobody in the UK was looking at those issues at all. And interestingly enough, back then in the mid-1970s, US food standards were higher than those in the UK or in Europe. Um, things have changed a great deal since then, and we can talk about how and why they've changed. But I, I was just reading all kinds of stuff about... Um, food policy, and the more I, I read, the more problems I uncovered. Um, and so that was what, that was 74. And I worked away on my own for 10 years, but then somebody, and I tried to get contracts to write books about the food system, and I couldn't find a publisher who, that was remotely interested. But 
somebody on the editorial team of the London-based publication New Scientist heard that I had something interesting to say about food and chemical safety, and they asked me to write, I think, sorry, 2,500 words, which I duly did. And I didn't hear from them a while, and I phoned them up and said, did you get my piece? And they said, oh, hasn't anybody told you? It's the cover story tomorrow. <laughs> and the next morning I was on the main radio news programme in, in the UK, in the, on, the, on the BBC, and half an hour later on BBC News Television. And within a week, Britain's, one of Britain's leading publishing houses, Penguin Books, offered me a contract to write two books <laughs> um, on food and health. And then I found myself amongst a group of like, a small group of like-minded people in, in the mid-80s. And, um, and then through a strange sequence of coincidences, food safety policy rapidly rose up the agenda in Britain, starting with food additives and chemicals in the food supply, but shortly after there were issues about um, food poisoning from salmon and oil eggs. And um, then we had mad cows, and, and, and that just kicked everything off. And... Um, and that kept me busy for a decade and a half, and then we've had GM food and and, and food, and I've um, yeah, I've been working on food safety policy ever since. So, Eric, moving from the seventies when you first started, what was the ev evolution in your food research? Were you really starting to work on additives in the beginning, or just agricultural processes, or animal no. husbandry? What was your first initial? Yeah, my initial, I started with food additives. I realized, realized that they were important stories to tell about nutrition, you know, excess consumption of fats and sugars and so on, and the relationship with heart disease and obesity. But there were several other, there were several others who were trained nutritionists who were working on that. So I picked the, an area that nobody else seemed to be working on at least in Britain and Europe, and that was food additives. But then I widened my perspective to pesticides. And, and then, as I said, we had the salmonella and eggs scandal. And, but an important event in the second half of the 1980s was that an institution was created in London called the London Food Commission, which did a lot of important work on a wide range of issues on food safety policy, very much from a consumer protection point of view. Um, and food safety policy just became an incredibly salient issue in, in, in newspapers, in magazines, and, and in radio and television. Um, there were just uh, waves and waves of documentaries about it. 
Um, and yes, as I, as I indicated before, mad cow disease was a huge problem. And it was during the Malay cow disease saga, which was as it were the culmination of waves of food safety scares and scandals in Britain, that food policy seemed to be playing a pivotal role in undermining public confidence in the prevailing government, initially led by Margaret Thatcher, um, and well, for, for many years run by Margaret Thatcher, but then later on John Major, and with a couple of colleagues, we, we as it were, started to address a more general question than just, you know, is this chemical safe, are these chemicals sensible to be used, and so on, to look at the structure and operations of food safety policy-making institutions. And I did a review of, I think, US, Canada, UK, France, Germany, Austria, Japan. I think those were the countries where I viewed. And I did a, a comparison and no two of those jurisdictions had identical systems, but my colleagues and I sought to identify the most beneficial features from all the available systems. And then we wrote a proposal for the creation of what in the UK came to be known as the Food Standards Agency. Um, and when the um, when the, the major government lost an election in the mid nineties, and Tony Blair's government came into power, one of the first things they did was develop a proposal based on the document we'd written for creating the Food Standards Agency, and. Indeed, it was established within a few years, um, though not precisely in, in, in the manner we recommended. Um, and so I've been, as it were, both looking at particular food safety issues over the years, but also at a more generic level on how food safety policy making institutions are designed and how they operate, and looking at their benefits and shortcomings and limitations and problems. Yeah. And that's what I'm continuing to do. Yeah, maybe before we go into the food policy uh, mechanism, what lessons can we learn from the BSE crisis or the mad cow crisis on food safety or public health policy? <laughs> okay. I'll try to keep it brief <laughs> because they're quite a lot of lessons. I mean, let me. I, I, yes, let me let me indicate several of them. This, this won't be a, an exhaustive list, um, and it won't necessarily be in the order of importance. But it'll be in the order of in which I re, they, I can retrieve them from my memory. Um, 
first of all, okay, let me explain. What, ha what happened in mad cow disease policymaking, and this is a problem which I fear continues in many jurisdictions, is while there was a pretense and claim that the government was providing evidence-based policy, what was really happening is it was policy-based evidence selection and interpretation. Well, it's even worse than that, actually. Firstly, in a, okay, it was represented as we are doing what and only what the scientists advise us to do. But in practice, behind the scenes, the government ministers and officials were carefully selecting as their expert advisors those that they could be confident would give them the advice that they've already decided they want to receive. Um, I mean, one of, the, one of the dreadful mistakes they made over mad cow disease was initially insisting that the expert advisory body, which they convened and manipulated, which consisted initially of only three people, they insisted in the, behind the scenes that it shouldn't include anyone with an expert on those kinds of diseases, because if they did, those people would draw attention to the limitations of prevailing knowledge as grounds for asserting the, the importance of further research and, and asking for funding for it. Now, the, the government didn't want to incur any extra costs, and they didn't want to hear about uncertainties. They wanted, essentially, the, what ministers decided is what we have to do is reassure the public. So we have to persuade the public that British beef is perfectly safe, even though cattle are falling down with this dreadful brain disease. So they, they didn't really ever ask the question, is it safe and can we be sure that eating beef or drinking milk from animals that have, um, been, have suffered from mad cow disease, they assumed they, that it was really safe and the job was to reassure the public that it was safe. Um, so that was, that was one of the first mistakes, which was not asking people, not seeking the advice of people with the real relevant expertise, choosing people as experts who they could be relied upon to give the advice they've already decided they want to receive, and they decide they made a point of not investigating the possible risk. So they created incentives for scientific studies not to be done. Um, and then, whenever reputable scientists drew attention to potential problems, um, the government just trashed them and call them fools and rogues and incompetence. I mean, it, it was dreadful. 
initially, um, mad cow disease obviously occurred primary, you know, occurred in cattle, mostly dairy cattle, and dairy cattle who were being fed with high-protein supplement that was made to include rendered-down bits of dead, dead animals. You know, when an animal is slaughtered, they cut away the meat, and what is left, the bones and the offal and, and the bits they can't sell, uh, was just going to the renderers, and that would separate out material, sort of solid materials, they called meat and bone meal, and fat, essentially, uh, float, flowed off the top of it. And the meat and bone meal, which contained protein, was, was being incorporated into dairy feed. And, yes, the carcasses of the animals that were going into the rendering process weren't just cattle, but also sheep. And sheep flocks in Britain and many other countries suffered an endemic problem with, um, what would you call it, um, a sh sheep spongiform encephalopathy, which was known by the short name of, of Scrapey. And the assumption was that carcasses of sheep, or the remnants of carcasses from sheep that had scrapey, were going into the rendering process. And actually, it was also always linked to the fact that there was a technical change in the rendering process prior to the early 1980s in the UK. Rendering was a batch process, so they they would have a retort. They'd fill it with residue of dead animals, cook it up, and get it to a relatively high temperature for a relatively long time in a batch, and then they'd separate out, separate out the fat from the protein. But the innovation that was introduced in the late 70s, early 80s, was changing rendering from a batch process to a flow process. So it was continuous along a chain of pipes, as it were, but, one of the, but with the consequence that the material wasn't raised to such high temperatures and didn't remain at high temperature for very long. So the hypothesis was that the pathogen that caused scrapey survived this new rendering process and um, got into cattle, and that mad cow disease was and only was scraping cattle. Um, but the, um, the only evidence that people could succumb to scrapey infections came from the Middle East where there was a practice of eating the brains of sheep. And that didn't happen in the UK at the time, and therefore it was assumed that um, otherwise, you know, shepherds who handle flocks of sheep that contained animals with scrapey, they didn't get um, ill from it. So it was assumed that 
sheep scrape, it couldn't be passed to people unless you had the sheep's brains, which we didn't. Therefore, material from sheep with scrapey wasn't a problem for humans. Um, but of course, if that pathogen got into cattle, we couldn't be sure that the transmission from sheep to cattle wouldn't in some important way change it so that maybe people could get ill. So that line of investigation wasn't followed. Um, and then we had, yeah, oh, I was going to say, yeah, I mean, there was a wave. It started with, oh, that's right, some unfortunate cat in the city of Bristol called Max that got nicknamed as Mad Max. That the, the cat died, I think, in about 88, 89 from what seemed like felines, um, spongiforming capillopathy. And the same rendered material had been going into animal, you know, pet food as well as the human food supply chain. So lo and behold, it could transmit to another species. And then there was a, an unfortunate series of zoo animals that also succumbed to a spongiform, a new kind of spongiform encephalopathy. And every time this happened, some people would say, hang on, now maybe we can't be sure that BS, you know, meat from cattle with BSE is safe. And the government trashed those arguments. Oh, no, no, it's only, you know, it, it, it can't transmit to people. We can be entirely sure that it's absolutely safe. And they repeat it, continued for 10 years to deny any uncertainties and misrepresent mad cow disease as proven to be demonstrably safe when that narrative was always misleading and was confronted by all kinds of problems. So they they misrepresented the science, they concealed the uncertainties, they trashed any scientist or any evidence that threatened to undermine their narrative and continued to insist that British beef was perfectly safe and everyone should keep eating it. Professor it, uh, Milson, I have a question. Yeah, um, sure. I mean, it's just, there's so many parallels to the COVID response. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, in terms of narrative, um, no, just pressure from government to control the narrative and certain, you know, regulatory capture issues as well. Um, well, is, is that true? I don't, okay, I don't know what's happening in the US. I I have spent in all the time since um, COVID emerged in Britain and Europe, but the governments here weren't concealing uncertainties. They weren't claiming everything was cut and dried. And they never even said, or only very rarely said, that the vaccines were totally safe. They would more carefully say the risks of not being vaccinated are almost certainly much greater than the risks of being vaccinated. So I... Maybe it was very different in the USA. What's the current state of BSE in the UK and globally? Um, uh, it's a puzzle. When 
the, the, the problem erupted and it became unarguable in the mid-90s that a small number of people had become fatally ill from a disease resembling mad cow disease that emerged into humans, which was untreatable and invariably fatal. Um, the claim was, okay, now, that, you know, okay. Um, what we have to do now is completely eradicate BSE from the food supply, and and we must make sure, no, you know, nobody else dies from the human variant. And after March 96, much, much stricter measures were imposed, and there was a very serious effort to try to eradicate BSE, first, infectivity from the animal food chain, and the disease from the herds of cattle, but for reasons that nobody can explain, just occasionally, a case of BSE in cattle pops up, occurs, and not just not just in Britain, and even not particularly in Britain, but around the world in several different places. And um, it's as if you know the pathogen, which began in, in the UK and, and spread further and wide, has been substantially restricted, and British and European beef is massively safer than it was between 85 and 96. But you know, it, 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 it's, there's still a small residue of it that pops up occasionally in circumstances which nobody's yet managed to explain. Was the response to regulate the rendering of those animal fats? Or how did they um, control culling animal I, populations? Well, yeah um actually they the initially um britain didn't um um ban the, uh, sorry, um the rendered material but they were pushed into it by other members of the european union and it, we had to have a european wide response Oh, and especially when BS cases of BSE started appearing in continental Europe, and then it is no longer lawful in Europe and the UK to feed meat and bone meal to ruminants, that's cattle or sheep, or for that matter, goats. So, yeah, it is, it is banned, which actually leaves them, leaves the, um, the slaughterhouses with the problem of how to dispose of the material, but it, it, it usually ends up in incinerators and landfill. What was, uh, maybe we can talk about regulatory capture now. I'm just curious yeah. what um, role that has in the UK or in the US or uh -huh. Europe okay. or Japan in terms right. of where, where the meat industry, how are they responding to uh, the mad cow disease? Yes. Uh, if I may, Robert, uh, can we just clarify that the concept of regulatory capture, in case um, anyone's not familiar with it, I, I understand regulatory capture to be 
situation in which representatives of the industry that the regulators created to regulate are actually not just influential but dominant in the institution set to regulate them. So they, as it were, like the thieves capturing the running the police force, as it were. Right. Yeah. Okay. Or, um, or was it what's the old English expression? The poacher turned gamekeeper, or controls the gamekeeper. Um, <laughs> I think I said earlier in this, this in this conversation that in the seventies, actually until Reagan came to power in the early eighties, food standards in the U.S were higher than they were in the UK and Europe. I often argued, you know, pointed to chemicals banned in the US but still permitted in in the UK and Europe and said that this just isn't good enough. And I think that was because the food industry and the farming interests were massively dominant in UK and UK policy-making institutions, and those of other European co- governments. And that, I think, was true to an g- even greater extent than was the case in America. Um, but part of the lessons of mad cow disease was that the, the, the British Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food had a contradictory remit. It was supposed simultaneously to look after the commercial interests of farmers in the food industry and to protect consumers. And the tension between those two agendas was so great that it let down every constituency and all stakeholders. Um, and when the Food Standards Agency was set up and, and subsequently the, the European Food Safety Authority, um, they were supposed to both be independent of ministers, or in the, in the case of the European institutions, of the European Commission, um, and also independent of the industry and the firms, the corporations, whose products they were set to regulate. Um, and that was an abrupt shift. I, I, I think the, the denouement, as it were, of the mad cow disease saga was a watershed in UK and European food safety policy making institutions. And Institutions were reformed and quite significantly reformed in, in the first place. And food safety standards in Europe did, and that Europe in the UK, did rise while in the US they continued on a process of de- decline that began in the early 80s um, under when Reagan was president. <laughs> um, I mean, initially, when Reagan came into power, you know, the, the, the leftovers from the previous Democratic administration was that 
a chemical used in the food supply could be and should be banned if it was if there was evidence that it could might cause cancer in laboratory animals or in some, um, bacterial uh, culture tests. And um, then the Reagan administration said, no, it's not good enough that it has to be, it's not enough for it to be cause, you know, cause cancer in one species or one variety of laboratory animal. It has to cause cancer in two species or more, like both mice and rats or you know, mice or guinea pigs or something. Oh, and also um, cause mutations in um, bacteria um, cell culture tests. Um, and so the Reagan administration kind of ranked, racked up the benchmark for evidence that would lead to restrictions on chemicals in the food supply. And as a consequence of which, <laughs> you, the, you, well, the U.S. food supply became less safe and even junkier than it already was. Whereas after the BRC, BSE crisis of the late 90s, European standards improved for a while. But part of what I have been examining and writing about regretfully, is finding evidence that actually over the years since the Britain, British Food Standards Agency was set up and the European Food Safety Authority was set up, they too have progressively become captured by, subordinated to the industries they're set to regulate. And um, the gap between I fear that if we carry on on the current trajectory, the gap between European standards and US standards will diminish, <laughs> and diminish because European standards will decline, not because US standards will improve. Professor Millstone, what are, I mean, which country in the world is, I mean, who has the best food regulation in terms of balancing uh -huh. safety and I guess the producers as well. Well, I, uh, you see, I would, I, I wouldn't characterize it. Those. I don't think it's about food safety. Is not about balancing producer and consumer interests. Food safety is about protecting consumers. If you want to look after industrial interests, ensure safety first, and then, you know, sponsor innovation and regulate competition between firms. But don't tangle them up together and don't trade one off against the other. You know, the attempt to trade one off against the other was a key part of the problems that led to the, the BSI, BSE crisis, catastrophe. What is the role of consumer um, references in the role of regulation and food safety? I mean, have people be, as I mean, at least where they're... and when <laughs> that, that that varies from country to country, and within country it varies from time to time. As I said, in you know, from the mid eighties, for about fifteen years, there was a you know, a, a very powerful wave of consumer pressure groups demanding safer food. 
in Britain and Europe, and they they, they had a big impact. But um, that those considerations are lower down people's agendas now. You know, I mean, they 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 started falling. You know, interest in food safety started decline when more urgent issues arose. So the two thousand and eight financial crisis prompted policies of austerity, and people were more concerned then about you know, food affordability than they were about safety. And, you know, that was true. And, you know, and then and then uh, COVID made everything incredibly difficult again. And, you know, and so many other issues came to dominate. And now we've got, God help us, we've got an appalling war in Europe. Um, we've got... <laughs> The economic fallout, both of the war and the catastrophic incompetence of a government that was briefly in office last year in the UK. So, yeah, at the moment, um, the, 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 the you know the food policy issue at the top of the public policy agenda is poverty and the unaffordability of I mean the of food for people even in work. I mean even you know. Even teachers and nurses in this country are going to what are called food banks. I, I don't know whether you use the same expression in the US, but a food bank is essentially a charitable um, institution which provides food for free to people who are too poor to buy it. And, I mean, a horrendous number of households in this country currently having to rely on food banks um, to, in, in order to feed themselves. And then with food prices and fuel prices rising, you know, the, the policy debate's been about do we eat or do we have the heating, you know, in the middle of winter, um, do we eat or do we have the heating on because we can't afford to do both. Yeah. So it's Focusing, been a while. Uh, professor, on the biosafety issue, what are your most concerning um, precedent issues? Is it the declining lack of regulation, or is it specific additives? Well, or I'm just curious what you're most concerned about. You know, genetic engineering of food items. Uh, yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> of course, for most of the period we've been discussing, the UK was a member of the European Union. It is that is no longer the case, as you will appreciate. Um, so, so the position in the UK is no longer identical to that in the European Union, but there's been okay. Genetically modified foods were introduced in the USA in the nineties. Um, and were widely consumed. To my certain knowledge, um, I know I know that. Oh dear, can I? Can I? My memory is failing me, but I can't. I think yes, I think it must have been in the dying months of the Clinton administration that. The U.S. Department of Agriculture did a survey of U.S. consumers and found that something like 80% of them 
wanted the presence of genetically modified foods to be indicated on the labels of food packets. But that was not government policy, US federal government policy, either under the Democrats or even the incoming Republicans. And that report has been buried and never seen the light of day. There was one paper published reporting some of the evidence, but it was quickly withdrawn. Um, <laughs> though I do have a copy. Um, in Europe, especially in the aftermath of the mad cow disease saga, it was politically unsustainable to to have a policy of permitting genetically modified foods unlabeled. Um, I mean, because especially as okay, the the narrative from the GM food industry was, oh, GM food is substantially equivalent to non-GM food. There isn't a there isn't a real you know, yes, there's a difference in the technology, but the final product's indistinguishable. But that resonated so strongly with, there's no reason to worry about mad cow disease because it's, it's, it's essentially the same thing as sheep scrapie, and sheep scrapie's never hurt anyone, so mad cow disease is perfectly safe. Okay, so th that while the narrative... While the US authorities got away with the phony narrative that GM food is substantially equivalent to non-GM food, the same argument wouldn't wash in Europe. So Europe has a labeling requirement for genetic for for those kinds of genetically modified food that have so far been authorized. Um, and as a consequence, actually, and especially in response to the mad cow disease saga. Um, when consumers throughout Europe, but especially in Britain, rightly felt that they had been seriously misled by the authorities and were given spurious reassurances. Uh, they just weren't persuaded by official and corporate reassurances about GM. And because the, if the products are present, they have to be labelled, um, the retailers know that consumers won't buy them, so they don't stock them, and there's hardly any GM food sold in Europe. But it's not just about labelling. I, 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 you know, I have published criticism, critiques of the ways in which the European Food Safety Authority assesses the acceptable safety of these products, and my view is that they look at too few possible kinds of harm, require too few studies, and, yeah. They what, are, in a, what are some of the harms and studies that they're not engaging in or studying? Well, um, okay. Let's take it and let's take an example. <clears throat> One of the most widely used herbicides, well, the most widely used herbicide in the world and in the US and in Europe is glyphosate. A lot of crops 
have been genetically modified so that okay sorry let me just back go back one second glyphosate is a very powerful herbicide it will kill almost all green plants um but the plants can be modif genetically modified so that they can tolerate glyphosate and yeah, glyphosate is often sold under the brand name Roundup. And so soybeans that are tolerant of Roundup are called Roundup Ready soybeans. Okay. The, the tests that are conducted were on the modified beans, but on modified beans that haven't been sprayed with glyphosate. There is a pretense that you know, the combination of Roundup Ready soybeans sprayed with glyphosate is only equal to, cannot be any worse than the possible risks of the beans on their own and the herbicide on their own. Now, that's not an empirical finding. That's an optimistic hypothesis and a hypothesis that deserves to be tested. Is that or is that not true? We don't know because they don't do that test. Um, in, well, sorry, authorities have never required the test, and the, and the only people who have tried to do tests of that sort have, have been critics of the GM industry. They've produced evidence suggesting that the crop treated with the herbicide is more harmful to laboratory animals than either the crop or the herbicide on their own, or even the sum of the two. But those findings have been trashed as unreliable because, you know, there were imperfections in those studies. But of course, there are imperfections in all studies. And part of my sort of most general critique of the ways in which regulatory institutions that have been captured by, um, by you know, corporate interest is that when they have studies that don't suggest any evidence of harm, those studies are treated as unproblematically reliable. This proves they're safe. If they do a study and it suggests harm, they think of all kinds of reasons what, to discount that evidence. Oh, it's only in rats. Rats are different people. We can't, you know. Um, or, oh, the circumstances of those experiments do not properly match real life for people. We can't, we can't treat those as reliable. And, and the term I've come to use for the way in which, um, as it were, often, in often scientists who are paid consultants to the companies whose products they're judging, I what, what describe their activities as being consistently inconsistent. So they are very generous to very weak studies that fail to find evidence of harm, but savagely critical of any study that suggests possible harm 
and endlessly coming up with excuses for discounting evidence of harm, and often the reasons that they give for discounting the studies suggesting harm, if they were applied to the studies that didn't suggest harm, would lead to those being rejected as well. You know, the sample was too small, um, the dose was unrealistic, all those kinds of excuses are given. Um, now, I'm not a great fan of animal tests, but if we're going to do animal tests and use them as a basis for deciding what to permit and what to forbid and what to restrict, then we ought to ensure that the evidence is interpreted in a genuinely consistent way. There's no good saying animal studies are reliable and they give us the answer we want, and unreliable and they give us the answer they don't want. That's not proper science. That's, you know, that is, as I said, not evidence-based policy, but policy-based evidence selection usually selected by people with vested interest in the outcome. Eric, what is the role of funding in your research and other researchers? Is it difficult to get grants in the UK, or what is the grant <laughs> process? Oh, it did. Because I'm sure Monsanto pays all the – it's the same as Pfizer or whatnot, or, you know, yeah. SSRIs. Um, or, I'm just curious. If you, yeah, if you – if you're prepared to work with industry – doing the kinds of work that they want to do, they will happily fund you. But if you want to do anything remotely critical, you can whistle for it. You're not going to get a cent. But it's also the same with government. I mean, certainly in this country, and it started when Margaret Thatcher was prime minister. Um, I mean, essentially the government argument was, well, you know, before... Scientists come running to government asking for research funds. They should get into bed with industry and work with them and let industry um, fund the studies. But industry is never going to fund a study that might suggest its products are unsafe. But the government's not doing it either. What, what the government's doing is saying, well, you know, the companies have vested interests in getting their product on the market. So they should pay for the studies. And I agree that they should pay for the studies, but I don't agree that they should design them and conduct them and have control of the evidence and the interpretation of the evidence. I mean, the, the incentives for, in, for industry to make sure that, you know, if you're going to do studies with rats, or mice, well, they're not going to choose the most sensitive variety of mouse or rat. They'll teach the less sensitive, and they'll try and use the lowest doses to death possible and have the, 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 the studies last for as short a time as possible and examine as few aspects of the animal's health as possible. What are um, some of your incentive solutions? Would it be um, increasing well, liability? Think, yeah. Well, you, you can do that. That That's probably 
important. But the trouble is, with limited liability companies, if you know, if their backs to the wall, um, they'll go bankrupt before, rather than than pay out. I mean, in in, in if you if you're going to have strict liability, you've got to have they got to be insured for their liabilities. Um, um, and, and, and so ultimately, if there's going to be a, a payout for the harm, that comes from the insurance company. But I, I don't think um, that's the way to do it. I think that what we should do is governments advised by independent scientists, scientists independent of both the of the companies, the industry, and ministers, should decide what kinds of studies are necessary and sufficient. And then they calculate the cost of doing the experiment. And then if the company wants its product tested so that it, they can use the results to get on the market, they should pay for it. But the studies should be conducted by independent laboratories and independent experts. And the independent experts, they should have control over ensuring that all the evidence enters the public domain and that the results are interpreted in a consistent way that serves the interest of protecting public health rather than helping the commercial interests of companies. Maybe we can shift to Brexit and the new... <laughs> yes. I, I'm curious if you've had any effect or uh, suggestion on the policymaking of the new division between the EU and, and the UK. Yes. Well, after... you know, Maybe, maybe my friends and I, colleagues and I, were a bit late off the mark here, but once... You know, there were a few of us were arguing before the Brexit referendum took place that Brexit would represent a serious threat to UK food security. But once the referendum result emerged, then the interest in our arguments grew. And my colleagues and I argued that Brexit represented a serious threat to food security in the UK in the following way. Okay, I understand a secure food system to be one that provides sufficient food, food that is produced and consumed in a sustainable way, food that is safe, both in terms of as were bacterial food poisoning and toxicological food poisoning. It should be nutritious, so, you know, not too much fat and sugar and lots of vitamins and, and minerals and, and, and fiber and so on. And it also should be affordable, accessible and affordable. So there are, for me, there are at least those five key aspects of food security. And my colleagues and I argued passionately that Brexit threatened UK food security in all those five respects. And I'm prepared to say to a US audience that one of our concerns was that food products that can lawfully be produced and sold in the US 
that are not considered acceptably safe in the UK and Europe could end up coming into the UK if there was the free trade deal between the UK and the US, which was acceptable to the US uh, Congress. In particular, okay, can I can I pick on two aspects of US food supply where I think it is far yeah. from acceptably safe? Of course, yes. One is, okay, f- acute food poisoning um, is caused by, typically by bacteria, things like salmonella, listeria, botulism, um, and campylobacter, and so on. In the USA, the especially in very large intensive livestock units and okay in livestock units the density of animals is so high that the animals leave the farm and head to the slaughterhouse contaminated with harmful bacteria now one of the rules in europe which I think is entirely sensible, for instance, applies, say, to poultry sheds. When a consignment of birds leaves the poultry shed and goes to the slaughterhouse, the law in Europe requires that the poultry shed are cleaned out and disinfected. The same does not apply in the USA. You can bring in fresh chicks into a highly contaminated, polluted poultry shed, which just recycles the bacteria into the next generation, subsequent generations of, of animals. So conditions of hygiene of livestock in the US are much poorer than those in Europe, and the stocking densities are higher. And, you know, the, the, the scale of your slaughterhouses and meat-cutting plants is so huge that if you get some infected material, say, in the wash or the blades that cut the animals, it can just be spread from carcass to carcass. So there are very high levels of bacterial contamination of meat in um, the USA, and US law permits sort of washing of carcasses and joints of meat with what are called pathogen reduction treatments, which are essentially supposed to be disinfectants. There's a variety of chemical mixtures used. One of the most common is chlorinated water kind of chlorine gas dissolved in water. But that just masks the pathogen instead of actually eliminating it. Yes. Um, a really interesting study emerged from some scientists in the city of Southampton a, a few years ago, which showed that treatment with these chemical washes do not kill the bacteria and barely slow them down. What's it what they do is 
blocks the standard test by which the presence of bacteria is, can routinely be detected. So the bacteria remain present, but appear absent in the, in the approved test. Um, as a consequence of which, actually, I regret to say, the, the, the rate of food poisoning in the US is very substantially greater than it is in the UK or continental Europe. And one of the arguments over Brexit was, we don't want what came to be called chlorine washed chicken. And, the, you know, chlorine, the issue of chlorine washed chicken was one that my colleagues and I put on the agenda in this country. And that became shorthand for much of what we thought was unacceptable with um, the, the, the likely impact of Brexit on UK food safety. Can I give you just one more example? No, it's fascinating. Yeah. I'm... Okay. Okay. In the USA and some other countries, but not in Europe or the UK, it is lawful to administer synthetic hormone pellets under the skin of cattle. And as those synthetic hormones dissolve into the animal's tissue, those hormones function as growth promoters, which means that the animals gain so-called target slaughter weight slightly more quickly and on slightly less food. So it promotes um, particularly muscle growth in especially in cattle. And they're very widely used in the USA and in some other countries like South Africa and Zimbabwe and Australia. But they're not lawful in Europe. And I think there are good reasons why they're not lawful. To the extent that the US authorities have assessed the risk of eating meat from cattle treated with these hormones, the US assessment, in effect, at best, only assesses the risks to average healthy adults. No, but nothing with children, not, or, yeah. Not not everyone's average. Not everyone's healthy, and not everyone's an adult. It didn't include babies, infants, prepubescent adolescents, the elderly, the immunologically compromised. You know, you know, people on chemotherapy, all kinds in you know, other groups, and. The European expert panel, their risk assessment, they said there is clear evidence that one of these hormones is actively harmful because it can cause cancer. And as for the others, there isn't sufficient evidence that it's safe across these wide groups, and therefore it's not permitted. Um, so that is another respect in which I would maintain that European in this case, beef, is significantly safer than U.S. beef. And no doubt, you know, the, the, the U.S. beef industry and its representatives would contest my claim, but I have um, published detailed scientific evidence in support of uh, this analysis, as indeed has, has the European Scientific Committee for Veterinary Medicinal Products. And so... Yes, there are other reasons why Brexit 
could represent um, a, a downward slope of declining food standards. Oh, but it's even worse. Okay. Do you have any optimism? I mean, the well, uh, in the sense me, that Brexit could, I mean, in theory, it could be even more stringent and more. Oh, it could. And it, I, I hope I don't shock you, but you might be surprised to learn that politicians aren't always truthful. <laughs> and uh, in the run-up to the um, to the Brexit vote, ministers were saying, "Oh yes, when we're independent, um, we can we can raise our standards." But <laughs> the moment Britain left, they set about trying to lower standards. And let me give you a particular concrete example. Um, last calendar year, so what about that, 2002, this country, the UK, had very briefly for, what was it, about 10 weeks or so, a government led by a hopelessly incompetent prime minister called Liz Truss, who yeah, one trashed, of the yeah. Yeah, trashed the, the British economy to the, you know, to the tune of, well, I think it was £80 billion pounds by adopting a food, unfunded tax cuts. Um, um, but her Minister for Industry introduced a panel called the Retained EU Law Bill, which states that, and it, and it made it into law, got onto the statute book, and it specifies that all the regulations and protections the rules and regulations that prevail in the UK by virtue of our prior membership of the EU will cease to apply on the 31st of December this year unless the ministry responsible drafts, prepares replacement legislation and gets it through all the required stages in Parliament. And so it says... You know, it was touted as, what, what, what's their slogan? Oh, a bonfire of red tape. You know, we're going to free Britain's entrepreneurs from the dead hand of European regulation. But, you know, it, it's like saying, I mean, you know, um, from the 1st of January next year, you'll be able to sell any old crap without any intelligence, any knowledge, any labeling or anything. And, so that represents, it would represent a complete catastrophe. I mean, not just for food standards or in, and environmental standards and vehicle safety standards, consumer product safety standards and investor protections and employment protection. I mean, there's a whole gamut of regulation and it has the makings of a total catastrophe. And where are we? We're in April. So it is, what, eight and a half months remaining of this year? And there was no conceivable way in which the, the, the British Parliament could pass the requisite legislation in the remaining eight and a half months. Um, and so levels of tension in this country are rising over that point. And... <laughs> civil servants seem to be expecting that at the last minute the 
the government under Rishi Sunak will back away from that utterly foolish piece of legislation. Firstly, they'll say, um, uh, uh, we'll extend the deadline from December 2023 to December 2024. And in the unlikely event that they're still in government um, in the autumn of 2024, they'll probably push it back to 2025 and so on. And I, 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 you know, so if we're looking for a chink of optimism from Brexit, it might be that this particular example of political folly might bite the dust, but it it's too soon to say. You know, we we've got a a ferociously ideological government that isn't interested in facts and evidence. Um Professor, returning to maybe your personal, um, when I spoke yeah. to another, all the toxicologists, uh, you know, all the research almost makes them not paranoid, but I'm always curious, how do you live your daily life? What do you eat? How do you yes. eat? Well, um, I don't eat junk food. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, f I will sometimes flippantly say I, I live... I, High up the muesli scale, you know, I eat. I'm not a vegetarian, but I eat a lot of vegetables and salads. I do eat meat sometimes, but in relatively small quantities. I very rarely eat highly processed food, um, you know, except when I'm, you know, out somewhere and I can't get hold of kind of food I really want to eat. Um, I prepare my food um, routinely from raw ingredients and, and prepare it in ways that I can prepare it quite quickly. I, you know, I don't go for complicated, elaborate recipes that take hours and hours. But I, I, think, I, I think I do have um, quite a healthy diet. If, yeah. Do you make efforts to know your suppliers or try to understand who, you know, here oh, in Hawaii, yes. you know, we have local yeah. butchers who we can, you know, know where our fish come from and whatnot. So I'm just yes, curious I mean, what the culture is like. Yes, I, 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 I think that um, that's not so easy in this country. I, there are other countries in Europe where that is much easier, where there's much more concern about locality and provenance of supplies and so on. Um, but I, 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 I do go to shops where, that I know and trust and avoid the ones I think are unreliable and dangerous. And, and I, I, I go for products that I deem acceptably safe and avoid the ones that I don't think are, are acceptably safe. Yeah, so I... Um, I do read labels, and I, I, I suppose I am quite well informed about what I, about what the characteristics of the food available. I, I, I take care to eat. And what professor, I, I think uh, of as a healthy diet. One of the things that struck me so interesting about your work is that. Um, can we speak about Iran just for a minute? And oh yeah. I mean, I, I know nothing about Iran, and. I'm just curious what your experience is there and 
you know, well, what you're I have, okay. I have never visited Iran, but I have, I'll, I'll frankly call it a pleasure because he was, a, he was, a, and I'm sure still is a, a delightful man. Um, an Iranian student came to my department um, to do a, a doctorate. And, well, he, he showed up with an initial idea, which I thought wasn't um, entirely sensible and would be very difficult to research. And he said, well, if, if I'm not going to do that, what else shall I do? And I had heard that there were some discussions in and he confirmed the discussions in Iran about the introduction of GM foods into Iran. Um, but there was a quite heated policy controversy in Iran about it. And the contending parties to that dispute were not so much public campaigners but different ministries with different responsibilities and different agendas. And he, the, he decided the research question he wanted to pursue is, well, how were policies over GM foods made? How were the policy decisions made in Iran? Um, given that there was heated conflicts within the Iranian government, and um, and pretty much the the whole process had gone on behind closed doors, and there was no accountability. So, so what really happened? That was his question. Um, and he was very—he's a very bright um, man, a very able researcher, who actually was incredibly fortunate <laughs> because he discovered, talking to some officials in the Iranian government, that there had been a lengthy series of meetings between representatives of the different ministry, the Ministry of um, Agriculture, Ministry of Health, Ministry of the Environment, and so on, Ministry of Industry, um, in which... Policy on GM foods was being negotiated, and that audio recordings of all of those conversations had been taken and were kept on file and would be made available to him so he could document in exquisite detail the negotiating process whereby... Um, Decisions which okay, so here's 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 a, a quiz question for you, Robert. I'm I, we concluded in the end that Iranian policy on GM food ended up closely resembling the policy of another country. Would you care to guess which country that might be? Isn't it the U.S.? It is. <laughs> Now, one might think there's a certain irony in that, given the Relations. political friction between um, Iran and the U.S. But the Iranians, and actually, it's, it's, I did find it, 
something similar in China, where I have been and did do research myself, is that both Iran and China think of GM foods from US companies as you know the spawn of the devil that they would never allow into their country. But homemade GM food, that's bound to be safe. <laughs> you know. Yeah, the Chinese loathe Monsanto, but they like their own GM crops. And in Iran, some Iranian um, plant geneticists had genetically modified rice. Uh, quite a lot of rice is grown in Iran. Rice plays quite a large part in the Iranian diets. And um, the, so the question was, would the Iranian government permit the, the cultivation and sale of Iranian genetically modified rice? And if so, under what conditions? And um, yes, and it was, it was an extraordinarily complicated negotiating process that went on amongst the ministries. And opinions swayed back and forth. But in the end, actually, it's, it was so interesting because um, it ended up with the scientists involved in develop, developing the product gaining enormous influence within the Iranian parliament and Parliament, in the end, deciding that this decision should be made by the Department of Agriculture and not by either the Department of Environment or the Department of Health. The introduction of this GM rice was opposed, as I recall, if I recall correctly, both by the Environment Department and the Health Department, but supported by the Agriculture Department. And in the end, um, as it were, the Agriculture Department believed the reassuring narrative provided by the scientists who developed it. <laughs> and so, in the end, they decided to approve it. But actually, it, it's been, probably my dear, dear, I suppose it's been um, a, a decade or two since my student completed his doctorate and um, we haven't been in touch for a very long time, so I, I cannot pretend to be up to date with what may have happened there. In fact, let me, I can just, oh, no. Sorry, I, I, I don't have immediate access. Are there the, any other doctoral, I, I think you're retired now, but you're still advising other doctoral students. Are there any interest? Just points? one. Oh, just okay. one. And any research of particular interest <laughs> that you'd like to share? Um, she is um, studying uh, the history of the debate about um, glyphosate. A any conclusions yet, or just that's a very no. It is at an early stage. She's at an early stage, so she doesn't have findings yet. And then one of my last questions is: um, I think Mexico and Russia—they're very anti-GMO, correct? They're is that because uh, well, they're protecting their own agricultural industry, or is it a biosafety issue? Is it more? 
I'm just curious. I think in Mexico the case is... Oh, I think in Mexico, in Mexico, um, well, you know, maize is the staple grain in Mexican diets. And the Mexican, you know, especially Mexican subsistence farmers, um, are highly reliant on their traditional varieties. And I remember, oh, I can't, can I remember the date? It was probably early in this century, in the first decade of this century. Um, evidence emerged that maize grown, being grown in Mexico, had already been contaminated with genes from American GM maize. And that shocked and appalled both Mexican citizens and Mexican authorities. And they have tried to, you know, they've, that had a big influence on, um, on policy in Mexico and still does to this day. But as for, as for Russia, I'm sorry, I, um, I have no knowledge of what's been going on in Russia. Um, I've never, I've never studied it. I don't speak the language. I can't read the documents. Um, I don't have any sources there, so I'm ignorant in that respect. And then one of my last questions, uh, Professor, is I think I saw a photo with you with a pin that said, question authority. <laughs> and yeah. I, I like that. I just wanted to, do you have anything to share about that? Or what's your philosophy regarding question Well, no, that, that is, a, I think that was a slogan from some Rastafarians. I mean, I, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think it's, it's it sound advice. Um, it, 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 here, here, here's what I thank of it anyway, as an interesting irony. One of the first scientific institutions ever created was the Royal Society of London, which was the first, one of the first scientific bodies in, um, for the develop advancement and dissemination of scientific knowledge, and it has a slogan, or I'm sorry, a motto, a motto, and the the motto's in Latin, but the English translation of the motto is "Take nobody's word for it." Really, you know, make your own judgment. Look independently at the evidence. Don't believe something just because somebody else. Told, tells you so. And for me, the irony is to my certain knowledge, and I know quite a few people who are members of the Royal Society of London, is that all too often <laughs> they act um, <coughs> in violation of their own motto. They don't follow their own motto. You know, I've, <laughs> I remember one person in particular, I asked, you know, had, you know, have you read a particular criticism of some of your ideas? And he said, oh, one of my students told me there's nothing in it worth worrying about, so I haven't looked at it. And I thought, but I didn't say. <laughs> but you remember the Royal Society. You're, su you're not supposed to take anyone else's word for it, you know. Quite so, yeah, 
Well, I, I mean, but not only do I question authority, but I question um, all kinds of allegations, whether people are in positions of authority or not. <laughs> you know, whether that's about you know, the risks from COVID or climate change or all kinds of things. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think uh, there's all too much ignorance and prejudice masquerading as reliable knowledge. And um, I've um, yeah, chosen to take my own path and I try very hard not to pronounce on issues unless and until I think I know what I'm talking about. And yeah, so great. Um, uh, well, I, Professor... que I, I question authority, and or I question what people say whether they're an authority or not. But let me just fi finish by saying that often those in authority have most to hide. Yeah, and that takes you back to your first meeting with those uh, yeah. people at that table. In the uh, ministry, indeed, it does. Yes. Well, Professor, uh, I really appreciate okay. your time. And okay. uh, how can people get a hold of you if they have further questions? Or I know you're retired and probably don't yeah. want more, but uh, well, I, I have an email address at the University of Sussex. But to be entirely frank, I struggle to cope with the rate at which emails come in as, as it is. But I do try and eventually get around to responding um, to people, but I, I don't always manage to do so promptly. Great. Well, I, I appreciate responding to mine. Um, Professor, thank you so much. It's late. Okay. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. Um, okay. Thank you. Okay. Good to talk to you.